All right, let's get started here. So last week we talked a bit about arrhythmia. The, the one arrhythmia we mentioned was sinus arrhythmia, right? So an arrhythmia is really anything that is a disturbance in the, in the rate. So if it's going too fast, too slow, uh, the regularity of the rhythm. So we know sinus rhythm generally is going to have nice R to R intervals that are the same every time. It's going to be nice and regular. But if you remember sinus arrhythmia, the rate varied a bit just with, you know, with inspiration, the rate speeds up. With expiration, it slows down. So some, an abnormality in the regularity of the rhythm. The site of origin. So it's not coming from the SA node, but it's coming, the pace, it's being paced from the AV node or the bundle of his, or the Purkinje fibers, or as we'll talk about today, from, from the myocardium somewhere in the atria. Then these things are abnormal and they're arrhythmias. Or the way that the, the electrical impulse is being conducted through the heart. Today we'll talk about something called an accessory pathway in which the electrical activity doesn't go down through the AV node like it's supposed to. It actually finds another route to get down into the ventricle. So that's uh, an abnormality in, the, in the, the conduction of the electrical impulse and that's an arrhythmia as well. So it can be a single beat. It can just be a one-time thing and goes back to normal. That one beat is still considered an arrhythmia. It can be that there's a really long pause. We're waiting on the electroactivity to kick back in. That's in this abnormal pause there. That's an arrhythmia. Uh, could be something that's sustained. It can be either for a few seconds, a few minutes, or it could be for the person's entire rest of their life that they're in this abnormal rhythm or arrhythmia, okay? Not all arrhythmias are abnormal or dangerous. Again, sinus arrhythmia that we talked about last week is completely normal and expected. Uh, in healthy individuals, just it changes with the inspiration pattern. But some are very dangerous and life-threatening if, if they're not dealt with uh, immediately. It's probably more accurate to call it a dysrhythmia, like an absence of good rhythm, whereas arrhythmia means no rhythm. Although there is a systole which has no rhythm at all, um, you know, that, might be, that would be the actual definition for that. We still call it arrhythmia in practice. That's, that's the terminology we use, okay? So as medical providers, we want to know what the heck's caused them to have an arrhythmia. Uh, sometimes we can figure it out, sometimes we can't, but there's a mnemonic that helps us to figure out at least some ideas of things that might be causing the arrhythmia. And that mnemonic is called HIS-DEBS. Um, so the H stands for hypoxia. Again, hypoxia is a lack of oxygen, so if you've got uh, coronary artery disease that reduces the blood flow to the myocardium, that myocardium becomes hypoxic and becomes irritable, and sometimes you can have abnormal rhythms come from that. God bless you. All right. Uh, or pulmonary disease, you got somebody whose lungs don't, don't uh, oxygenate very well. you got COPD patients, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, or other things that make them not oxygenate their blood very well. The, the myocardium can become hypoxic from that, and again, you can have an arrhythmia. Ischemia, same idea. Again, it's a lack of blood flow to the heart. The muscle hasn't died, but it certainly has a lack of blood supply that gets the myocardium irritable and can cause arrhythmias. Sympathetic stimulation, um, like before you take a farm test. Uh, anxiety, uh, hyperthyroidism, exercise, those things can also set off um, um, arrhythmias. Drugs that you take, electrolyte disturbances, so somebody's been nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, they're losing lots of fluids, they're losing lots of electrolytes, potentially they could have arrhythmias as well. Uh, bradycardia, I'm not sure what that's supposed to be, uh, exactly what they're getting at there, but um, sometimes the rate will be abnormally slow. Um, 
and that's because they're having an arrhythmia stretch. Um, so if you've got heart valves that don't work very well, right? Valves are supposed to allow blood flow just to go in one direction. But if you've got mitral valve regurgitation, the blood flow goes back up into the atrium, stretches that atrium out because it's got too much blood in it, then that stretch can initiate um, arrhythmias. Okay, so, so his DEBS is kind of a way for you to think through what might be causing this arrhythmia. Is it something I can help to fix uh, or and what we need to do about it? So manifestations of arrhythmias. What are the symptoms? What, what kind of things are we going to have the patients complain about that we need to maybe think about doing an EKG, which remember is the gold standard for diagnosing any, any arrhythmia. So palpitations or that flip-flop feeling in your heart. You get all anxious, you know, whatever. We, we've probably experienced palpitations. It just feels like that fluttering in your chest. Lightheadedness or syncope. Um, this may be because, you know, the, the myocardium is contracting. The blood supply is supposed to go out into the brain and everywhere else. But if, if you're not perfusing the brain very well, you start getting very dizzy, lightheaded, potentially even pass out, and that may be a sign of an arrhythmia. Angina, chest pain, um, chest pressure, discomfort in the chest. If, if you've got a lack of blood supply going to the myocardium because things are not pumping very well, then angina might be one of those symptoms. Congestive heart failure. We'll talk about this some more today with particular arrhythmias, but if the atria is not contracting normally and the blood supply doesn't get down to the ventricles like it should, and the ventricles don't have enough blood supply to pump out, everything kind of, back, I'm sorry, everything kind of just backs up in the system, okay? Everything should move forward out into the, into the body, into the circulation, but if things aren't pushing the blood out that direction, it goes backwards, it goes back into the pulmonary circulation, and you end up with what's called congestive heart failure. So you got a patient... Short of breath, if you listen to their chest, have you guys talked about rails or, or that kind of stuff? So the, a little bit, if you, if you listen to their chest, it kind of sounds wet. Um, and so those are things that make you think, maybe this person has an arrhythmia or something that could be causing it, okay? Sudden death, that's bad. You got a dead person in front of you. Maybe it was an arrhythmia. Um, so, I mean, we talk about uh, people falling out in the street. The most common cause are things like ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia. And those are the ones that, you know, people shock right away. And that's why they had this big push for these AEDs to be put in, in places because that's what's life-saving for those people in those arrhythmias. It's the, you know, so sudden death absolutely can come from an arrhythmia. All right, so an ectopic focus or ectopic foci is the plural for that. It's just these excitable group of cells that cause a heartbeat or a heart impulse that's outside of the normally functioning SA node, okay? So um, again, even the myocardium itself can be an e a place for ectopy to happen. Um, and it's just these excitable cells that cause an impulse that's not from the SA node. So if the SA node isn't working right, okay? Remember, the SA node is our primary pacemaker for the heart. If, it's, if it quits functioning and you've got this stretch in the atria or this irritability that's there, there's a potential for these group of cells to begin a, a wave of depolarization that will cause the atria to contract. Or, or it can happen in the ventricles as well. But if you, the SA node is not working right, we may have a rhythm or at least one, um, one beat that comes from somewhere besides the SA node. And it can take over as the primary pacemaker, as we'll discuss in some rhythms today. Again, arrhythmia or ectopy can be one single beat, or it can be a sustained rhythm that continues on and on and on. All right, SA nodes a normal pacemaker of the heart, duh. 
Abnormal pacemaker activity can arise from other parts of the heart, including the atrial muscle, atrial myocardium, the pulmonary vein area, the AV junction, which we've talked about already, um, and the ventricles or the Purkinje fibers down there. Let's start out with uh, what's called premature atrial contraction. If you read Goldberger's, I think he calls it something else. I'm trying to remember uh, atrial premature beat or APB maybe. Um, so those are this, oh, yeah, get up there, APB. So those are the same thing, just different terminology. I've always called it a PAC, so I, that's what I'm going to use. Feel free to call it whatever, whatever else, you know, like that, APB or whatever. But what this is, it's an it's a ectopic stimulus that comes from somewhere either in the left or right atrium or intraventricular septum. I'm sorry, intraatrial septum. septum. And so um, it's, not, it's a wave of depolarization. It's not coming from the SA node, but somewhere else in the atria that's causing the atrial depolarization. They're super common. Um, it's not necessarily abnormal. It can happen in your heart and probably has happened already today. Um, or, it, you know, from the stress of things, again, sympathetic stimulation, so emotional stress, excessive caffeine. PA students would never have this right. Um, or PAs, for that matter, for crying out loud. It doesn't get any better, guys. Uh, that's great, isn't it? So, um, so, it can, so it can happen in a normal heart. We've, I've expected it's probably going on in here today. So emotional stress, excessive caffeine, hyperthyroidism, sympathetic, sympathomimetic agents like epinephrine. Have you guys talked about cardiac medicines and stuff already? Not yet. It's coming soon. Okay, we'll, we'll introduce you some, to some medications today that you'll hear Dr. Hames, I'm sure, go on and on about and tell you more information than you'll ever remember or know and, and run circles around me with it. But so... Um, and it can cause, again, palpitations in your chest, making you feel like that skip-beat feeling, that flip, flip sensation in your, in your chest. I was trying to do a Google search for PACs to find a picture, and it came up with Pac-Man, so I had to put it on there. You guys, you guys probably never played Pac-Man on a real, like, joystick, did you? I mean, not, not like the controller in your house. On the joystick? Okay, sweet. See, when I was a kid, we had these things called arcades. And that was the only way you could play video games. You could go into arcades, spend the whole afternoon there, you had to put quarters in, and there were all these big machines. We didn't have, you know, stuff to take off. So, all right, good. I'm glad everybody's played Pac-Man with a joystick. All right, so atrial depolarization, it's a premature beat that is happening before the next P wave is due, okay? Since this is not truly a P wave because it doesn't come from the SA node, we actually label this or call this a P prime wave. And the P prime wave, because it's not coming from the SA node, will have a different appearance or a different morphology than the, than the P waves themselves. So if you look up here, can anybody tell me which number B looks like it's something abnormal and probably the PAC? The fourth one. Very good. So you've got a sinus beat here, a sinus beat here, a sinus beat here. And you can see this one happens before it should. We would expect these to be nice and regular, and it should fall somewhere over here, right? It's happening premature. So that's our first clue. It's probably something abnormal, premature. And if we look at the P wave, it does have a little P wave shape here. But if you look at the picture um, of this P prime wave, it does not look the same as the P wave here, coming from the SA node. Okay, so it's premature. It has a P prime wave there. It looks different in morphology than the P wave there. Okay. Now, sometimes these can be so premature 
that the P wave will actually land inside of the preceding T wave. And I'll show you some examples of that in just a minute. And what will happen is the T wave will have a different appearance than the previous T waves because there's increased uh, amplitude to that wave because it's adding the, that P prime wave um, amplitude to it, okay? All right, it can also be so premature that the ventricles are not ready to contract again. So a few years ago, I decided I was gonna try to do a, um, uh, a, a little sprint triathlon. I hadn't swam since I was a kid. So I went to the pool and I, and I was, I mean, it was awful. You know, going from one end to the other was like about to kill me, okay? I had to get to the other end and sit there for, for 10 minutes to recover before I could come back and turn around and go the other way. So this is what I'm getting at is this is kind of like what we call a refractory period. There's a period in the heart where no matter how hard you push the impulse, nothing's gonna happen. The ventricles are not ready to contract again. Just like I swam down to the other end of that pool, man, you could tell me, give me a million dollars to turn around and swim to the other side, it ain't gonna happen, okay? I was gonna drown in the water if I did that. So, so the same thing is true with these ventricles. There's an impulse that's coming so early from the atria because it's premature that those ventricles are not ready to contract again. They're not ready to depolarize and so there will be a P wave or a P prime wave followed by nothing but a block and just space there in time, okay, because the ventricles aren't ready. And I'll show you an example of that in a minute as well. There's also um, what we call an aberrant conduction that can happen with the PACs, where normally with a PAC you would have this nice QRS complex that looks the same as all the rest. There's an aberrancy, there's an abnormality there in the way that the ventricles depolarize and it'll be wide and bizarre looking. And I'll show you an example of that in a minute too, okay? Here we go. So again, the conducted PAC, we've already looked at that example. It's premature, there's a P prime wave there. It looks different than the P wave preceding it. And there's a QRS complex that follows that's completely normal. You can also find that the PACs will land on the preceding T wave, like I mentioned a minute ago. And everybody point that one out, count which one you think it is. Fantastic, it's the seventh beat. And you can see it's premature. You're looking at the regularity of this here. It falls prematurely. In fact, the T wave does look a little bit different in appearance than the, the preceding one. And that's a clue that there's a hidden P prime wave inside of that. And we call that a PAC, okay? Again, if it, if it happens so prematurely the ventricles are not ready to swim to the other side of the pool, then what will happen is you'll get the P prime wave here. You can see it's different in morphology, followed by nothing but a block because the ventricles are not ready to depolarize again. It's in that refractory period, okay? So it's a blocked PAC. Last but not least, you'll get occasionally an aberrancy. You get these wide, bizarre-looking complexes, which oftentimes we'll talk about next week. Uh, PVCs, or premature ventricular contractions, will have this appearance. The way we know it's not a PVC and it's a PAC is because Prior to that, we have this P prime wave, okay? The atria are contracting, the atria are depolarizing, so it's coming from the atria. You see that the P wave morphology is different, and then you get this bizarre looking complex. It's happening prematurely. It's a premature atrial contraction with an aberrancy. Everybody follow that? Everybody go with PACs? Let's talk about atrial flutter. Anybody heard of atrial flutter before? A few people. 
So it's a type of supraventricular tachycardia, meaning it's happening above the ventricles. Tachycardic meaning it's a rate over 100, very good. And it's caused by this re-entry circuit inside of, the, inside of the right atrium. I haven't pulled out the markers yet, let me do that. It's a heart, believe it or not. Of course, we have our valves here, right? And we have the cardiac skeleton that stops the electrical impulse from the atria down to the ventricles. SA node, AV node, et cetera. So, all right. Okay, now where was I? All right, atrial flutter begins with a PAC. So it's a premature atrial contraction that begins this abnormal re-entry circuit within the right atrium. And it keeps circling over and over in the same direction. It's, so it's in the right atrium, and what happens, it can go clockwise or it can go counterclockwise, okay? I don't want you to get too hung up on determining between the two, just FYI. Typically, it's in the counterclockwise direction like this, okay? And so what happens, every time it circles back around, it's hitting, hitting the AV node, and if the AV node is ready, if it's not in the refractory period, if it's ready to swim to the other side, so to speak, then we'll get a contraction down the ventricles. If it's not, then it's just going to keep going back around. It's going to stimulate the atria. The atria will continue its thing until the AV node is ready to do its thing, okay? So in other words, the atria contract more often than, than the ventricles do typically, okay? What is classic about atrial flutter is it has these cool-looking waves down here that we call sawtooth waves. So think about a hand saw at home, how it's kind of got those little edges to it. You can kind of, you can pick those out like that, okay? These are not called P waves. They're called F waves or flutter waves. They have a different name. Um, atrial flutter is not going to happen in you and me unless you've got an abnormality in your heart. It's not a normal rhythm. It's coming from some kind of structural or electrical disease in the atria, okay? Everybody see the flutter, flutter wave appearance? This kind of stands out. It's one of those easy ones, fun ones to kind of, to diagnose because it's generally pretty easy to point that out. Yeah, all these are all these are F waves right here. Okay, those are F waves. In fact, there's there's usually there's one hidden within the QRS complex too, and that's what you're seeing right here is, is the end of that another F wave. And there's one right inside of there as well. Okay, so these are all F waves. You get your QRS complexes here. Yes, it starts with that premature atrial contraction. So in other words, somewhere, somewhere up in here in the, you know, in, the, in the atrial myocardium, something happened that wasn't supposed to, it wasn't the SA node that did that, and these people are predisposed to kind of just keep this circuit going over and over and over again, okay? So this is your F, those are your flutter waves up here coming from this right here, and when you do get the QRS complex, it's finally going down through the AV node and depolarizing the ventricle. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So, someone's having a flutter, how long could they have to go? Uh, you mean like before it just resolves on its own? Uh, yeah, it could resolve, like it could go back and actually start acting. It's a good question. It could. I mean, some of these things, are, they're not, I mean, some, something has to happen to make it, make it stop. 
Uh, same thing as we get the supraventricular tachycardia or SVT here in a little bit. It's kind of a perpetuating rhythm. And so until something happens, whether it be uh, a stimulation from inside the body or medication or something like that, it, it, could, go on it could go on indefinitely. It's not to say that it will, but it could. I mean, how's it going? Yeah. Well, the atrial is contracting up here so many times before this one will contract. So uh, the most common is, a, and we'll get to it in a second, is a, is a two to one ratio, okay? So two atri atrial contractions to one ventricular contraction, okay? So the blood's still going down. Now, it's just, it may not be filling the, the atria completely full because it's happening so fast, there's not enough time for it to, you know, to completely fill up. So, but there is blood coming into the atria. The blood is being contracted down into the ventricles. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, and so you can get some funny feelings that way, too. And we'll talk about that with SVT in a minute, too. The, the atria and the, and the ventricles uh, can go simultaneously, and you'll get... Uh, a feeling in your neck, and it causes a particular what we call cannon A wave in, in the neck, and it's just just funny feeling from everything kind of going at the same time. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Again, there's no isoelectric uh, baseline because there's flutter waves continuously, right? So there's really no, no point in which everything's completely flat. Um, and if you look in V1, remember your precordial leads, the ones that go in the chest that read front to back, V1 over to V6. If you look at that V1 lead, sometimes it'll look like P waves there, so be careful. Or it could be, it could be helpful to you if it looks like, well, maybe those are flutter waves, but it looks like P waves in V1. Um, so just make sure you're not looking at just V1 and see something looks like a P wave. And I'll, we'll show you that in just a second. All right, again, the most common atrial to ventricular ratio is two to one and it results in a rate of 150. I think we skipped over something here, but. So the, the atrial activity with flutter, although it's slightly variable, is usually right around 300 beats per minute, okay? So if you were to take, um, take the ventricular rate, if it's pretty reg happening pretty regularly at a regular block, you can figure out the rate based on that. So if you've got an atrial rate of 300, and half the time, you're getting a ventricular contraction, two to one, then the ventricular rate will be half of your atrial rate of 300, so it'd be about 150. Okay, same thing would be true if it was three to one uh, and, and four to one, so on like that, okay? Um, all right. Sometimes the block can be higher, meaning there's, there's more atrial contractions before there's a ventricular contraction. And that's going to be due to somebody being on a medication, maybe like a beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, or something else going on with the heart that's making it slow down at, at the AV node. Now, you can occasionally get a, um, an atrial flutter with a one-to-one -one ratio. Now, that's bad, okay? Atria contracting at 300, the ventricles contracting at 300. There's really no time at all for those ventricles to fill up and really perfuse and, and put any blood um, out. Now this happens because of what we call an accessory pathway, which we'll get in, well, let's go ahead and introduce you to that, okay? An accessory pathway is supposed to be like a bypass in the city. Now, if you've ever been to Jackson, our bypass is anything but a bypass, okay? It runs right through the middle of town, everybody's on it, going from work from one side to the other, it takes a freaking forever, okay? 
So, but a bypass is supposed to be a way around the traffic to kind of speed things up. So in some people, it's, you have an abnormal accessory pathway. I'm just drawing it over here. It, can, it could be over here or somewhere else. But an accessory pathway that lets the, the, the atria contract directly to the ventricle. Okay? If you remember, the AV node is supposed to slow down conduction so everything doesn't happen simultaneously. But what happens when these people have an accessory pathway, the atria contract, I mean, the atria depolarize, and the depolarization goes straight down into the ventricles through that accessory pathway rather than using the AV node to slow things down. And so in those people with atrial flutter, they can have a one-to-one -one ratio, and that's, that's bad news, okay? Severe hypodynamic instability and progression to what we call ventricular fibrillation. And fibrillation just means it's just quivering. So if your ventricles are just quivering, you're not moving blood at all, right? So that's bad. That's bad, bad. All right, this is atrial flutter. Everybody see the nice flutter waves there? Generally best seen in these inferior leads, two, three, and AVF. Excuse me, if you look up here in the V1, like we mentioned, they almost look like P waves, right? They kind of look more like humps than, than flutter waves. But that's typical for atrial flutter. All right, we call it four to one because for every four flutter waves, there's one ventricular wave. Now, the tricky thing is it looks like there's three flutter waves and there's one ventricular contraction, right? See that? But remember, there's a, there's a flutter wave hidden within the QRS complex. So that's where we get the four to one. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Can trip people up sometimes, but this is a four to one block. Um, it, the thing about flutter, generally speaking, if the block is steady, it's, it, it can, although it can vary, it's a regular rhythm. Okay, you see how the QRS complexes are nice and regular? Okay, unless you have a variable block, Atrial flutter will be a regular, regular like that. I'm trying to get my caffeine in so I can have some more PACs later. <laughs> I already have my coffee, now I'm on my kickstart. Okay, so here's a, an, again, just atrial flutter. It's got all your little stuff up here to kind of help you remember. Generally, the atrial rate around 300. This says 250 to 350. The ventricular rate can vary depending on the block. Um, again, the atrial rhythm is nice and regular. Those flutter waves are happening, happening at the same time. And the ventricular rhythm can be regular if the block is steady. It can be irregular. We'll show you a variable block in just a minute. Remember, these are not called P waves. They're called F waves. PR interval, if you're trying to measure that, you can't. There's no PR interval, okay? And the QRS complex is, generally speaking, unless there's a bundle branch block or another problem that we haven't gotten into yet, they should, they, they're generally going to look normal. Yes, sir. What about a patient's heart rate when they're coming back from ventricular flutter? It'd be the ventricular rate. Yeah, use the ventricular rate. Um, yeah, the ventricular rate. That's what we're most concerned about when we're when we're looking at the patient in clinical situation. If the ventricular rate is under control, those patients may do okay. If the ventricular rate's really really fast, then they then they start becoming compromised with the, you know with perfusion. Generally, the atrial rate's always going to be right around 300 for that. Okay. Um, so the AV node has a long refractory period, and so only one in a series of flutter waves conducts to the ventricles, okay? 
just like we mentioned, the, the, the impulse is going to continue that circular pattern up there in the atria, but only when the AV node is ready to accept that next impulse will they depolarize and cause a contraction. So um, the ventricles um, usually are not going to be at the same rate of the atria, thankfully. Um, vagal maneuvers may be helpful as a diagnostic aid. Have you guys ever heard of vagal maneuvers? Okay. So it's something to stimulate the, the vagal nerve um, to help kind of slow things down. There's different ways you can do that. Um, it can be carotid massage. Um, we had a guy, actually, we had a guy, I guess it was been a couple, three weeks ago, excuse me, came in in, in SVT, which we'll talk about in a minute, very, very fast rhythm, and we're trying to get him all hooked up to the machine, and, and while we're doing that, we're having him do these vagal maneuvers. Okay, buddy, bear down like you're trying to have a bowel movement, although don't. Bear down like you're trying to have a bowel movement. Uh, we've got a straw out for him to blow in the straw so that, you know, kind of blowing hard like that can potentially slow the heart rate down. Uh, we tried carotid massage. You don't want to rub on both at the same time, but rub on one side, rub on the other side. Um, and then we tr tried putting ice on his face, all these different things to try to get him to convert, which didn't happen. I wanted to show you this, this clip. Um, did anybody ever watch ER back in the day? It's, it's been, I don't know, is it still on syndication or something? See, when I was growing up, I was in college, and it was actually on TV, like the real ones, okay? I think I've got this here. Okay, let me switch this over real quick. This is an example of a vagal maneuver. I don't know if you should try this one, though. We'll see. What do you think? So I don't know if you could pull that one off in the ER and I get sued. Pastor always says when he's baptizing people, hold them under until they bubble. I don't know if that's what you, really what you want to do. Want to do but, um, but that, so cold water, you know, it just uh, causes vagal stimulation. All right, so that's, called, that's a vagal maneuver. Okay. Um, so what that does, vagal maneuvers increase the AV node refractoriness, increases that refractory period, slowing things down so the ventricles don't depolarize and contract as often, and that, that can help. Uh, the patient was, you know, becoming, I guess, unstable or something. That's why they, they were getting the crash card out and all that stuff. But um, otherwise, generally not too panicked with, with atrial flutter. Okay. Um, this is a bunch of repeat. Okay. 
So again, the atrial automaticity focuses about 300 per minute, and generally the ventricular rate is some ratio to that. So again, if you've got uh, two atrial contract or two atrial contractions, two flutter waves to one QRS complex, the rate's generally going to be around 150. Three ventricular or three flutter waves to one QRS, the rate's around 100, etc. Okay, four to one, 75. Makes sense. Again, sawtooth waves best seen in the inferior leads, 2, 3, ABF, and in V1, we've got those P wave looking appearances there. Normally, unless there's a problem with the ventricular conduction, the QRS complex is going to be less than 1.12, and again, absence of an isoelectric baseline. So treatment. What do we do for these patients? I'm not going to go into it too much, but I want to introduce it to you. I'm sure in ClinMed you guys will get into this stuff in more detail, but uh, initially we want to control the rate, okay, these are, um, because again, if the ventricular rate is really, really fast, they can become hypoperfused, the, the, um, the, the cardiac output goes down, and these patients may not tolerate that very well, so we try to, to uh, limit the ventricular response. Um, medications we use would be things like beta blockers, this is all new to you, right, beta blockers, okay. So beta blockers, when you get into those medications, what they do, they increase uh, the, the strength of the contraction, but they slow things down. And beta blockers all end in OLOL, okay? Latoprolol, sotolol. Um, those, so there's a, one way you can kind of pick those out. Calcium channel blockers, they work mainly on the, AV, it make, work on the AV nodes, slowing it down. And so calcium channel blockers and then digoxin, been around for ages and ages. Um, can be used to slow down the rate. Because in, in, in atrial flutter, it's typically one particular area in the atria that's caused the problem, you can sometimes go in and do what's called AV ablation, where they actually, by an electrophysiologist, a cardiologist trained in this, will go in and basically kill out that tissue so that it quits becoming the irritable place that's causing this arrhythmia to happen. So atrial flutter, you can use AV ablation. Um, and the, it's uh, really the preferred treatment for these. Just doing a rate control is a preferred treatment in people who have an acute illness that's causing them to have atrial flutter. They're going to get over it. Um, we don't need to try to um, restore normal rhythm because if we get them over this illness, they'll probably go back into a normal rhythm anyway. So we would do things like these medications just to keep the rate under control. Or people who are tolerating the rhythm just fine, they're not having any problems, they're not having any symptoms with atrial flutter. We can just leave them be, put them on medications to control the rate so that things don't ever get out of hand, okay? Anticoagulation is another big thing. We'll go, I guess we'll go ahead and mention it because it's on this slide. But with atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation, the atria are, are not contracting as effectively as they are in sinus rhythm, okay? They're, they're just not working as well, especially in atrial fibrillation, which we'll get to in a minute. So the blood has a tendency to pull up in the atria and sit there, and if blood sits, it clots, okay? So clot, it, it can begin developing a clot up here. So these people who are in atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation for, for extended periods, we put them on anticoagulants, whether it be aspirin, Coumadin, uh, things like that, in order to prevent the clot from, from forming and then sending it out and causing somebody to have an ischemic stroke, okay? So these patients have to be able to tolerate anticoagulation and they have to be tolerating uh, the rhythm okay and we can just try rate control. Here's another atrial flutter example. Sorry, these slides are a bit maybe out of, out of order. You can see there's several flutter waves. The, the ventricular rate is a bit irregular. 
So sometimes you'll have a, a variable block. So in, in the acute phase, sorry, this should have probably come first, but the, in the acute phase, the treatment of atrial flutter and fibrillation, both are anticoagulation. Again, we're trying to prevent the clot from forming. Generally, you've got about 48 hours before that, that would happen, so, uh, begin to happen. So you start them on anticoagulation, and you try to control the rate again, keeping those ventricles slowed down so that we have good um, perfusion, good cardiac output. This looks like a bit more of the same. So uh, atrial flutter, we're talking about um, for the long term, instead of maybe rate, controlling their rate, maybe now we want to actually try to get them back to a normal rhythm, okay? And those patients that can't tolerate anticoagulation, they are symptomatic, let's try to restore them back to a normal sinus rhythm. So there's a couple different ways that you can do that. One is with medication, what we call a chemical cardioversion. Although, according to the stuff, it says it's of limited value, it doesn't work as well as what we call electrical cardioversion, or shocking the crap out of people, okay? So, um, this is actually uh, considered safe and reliable, and what it does, and when you apply the electrical activity to the heart, it depolarizes everything, and it basically restarts back in a normal rhythm, hopefully, okay? Now, we have to do what's called a synchronized cardioversion. Very, 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 very important, okay? Synchronized cardioversion is something that when somebody has a pulse and, they're, and they're, they have a pulse, what we want to do is make sure that when we apply that electrical activity, it's happening right on top of the R wave. Okay, if you, if you make the electrical activity happen over the T wave, you can send these patients into an unstable rhythm like ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, which decompensates. So you've got an, a stable patient here who you're just trying to get back to a normal rhythm and you forget to hit that synchronized button on the machine Man, you can cause a world of, world of trouble and hurt, okay? So synchronized cardioversion in these patients. And let me see if I can pull that video up for you, too, okay? Um, well, I'll tell you what. I'll wait, I'll wait. Because <laughs> I think he's talking about SVT on the video. I think it would be more helpful to wait till that. So, um, so and then if we, if we can restore them back to sinus rhythm, we try to maintain that with medications. Again, I don't want to stay on this too long. This is more ClinMed stuff, but there's different medications you can use. And uh, you can also do an ablation, which about 90% of the time has some good, a good success rate for atrial flutter. Again, going into that area in the atrium that's causing the irritability, destroying that tissue so that it no longer causes that impulse to throw them into the atrial flutter. Right, this is medication. Um, yeah, there's, there's no concern with that, absolutely. All right, atrial fibrillation. This is a good one, too. This is very common. And um, it's uh, instead of one particular area in the atria causing a premature contraction. You've got a whole bunch of places, OK? So instead of one spot, you may have many, 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 many places in the atria all fighting and competing to try, try to take over as the pacemaker of the heart. And what happens is, as you can see up here, there's just spots going out everywhere. And so there's no, there's no organized electrical activity of the, of the atria. It's just kind of quivering. It looks, people call it like a bag of worms. Think about, back to our Indiana Jones guy, right? So he hated snakes, hated snakes. 
So if you had a bag full of snakes, just imagine how it would kind of look like, you know, they're all wiggling around inside that bag. That's kind of what your atria would just look like. It's just there's nothing really organized about it, okay? So um, the atria is just depolarizing in all different directions at a time. So there's no P waves in atrial fibrillation. It's the key to helping you figure it out what rhythm it is. There's no P waves in atrial fibrillation. It's also what we call an irregularly irregular rhythm. For some reason, that, that term has thrown people off in the past. But all it means is there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to the ventricular, the ventricular depolarization and contraction. If you were to try to measure this one out to this one, they're, they're never going to be the same. It's just always, always irregular. Okay? And we have an absence of an isoelectric baseline. It's just nothing but a lot of just quivering all the time because the atria are just constantly bag of worms, right? Okay. Um, so... Sometimes these, and we call these F waves too, with a small F. Remember the flutter waves were big F, uh, fibrillation waves were these as a little F, not true P waves. Um, it can be hard sometimes to see them, and we'll look at some EKGs in a minute where it almost looks like it's kind of flat, and you can't really see these, these F waves. Uh, and sometimes it may even see something that looks like, kind of like a P wave. But one dead giveaway that it's not sinus rhythm and that it's atrial fibrillation is that it's an irregular ventricular rate. It ought to be a clue. If you're measuring out those R to R intervals and it's irregular, you know, think AFib, okay? Begin to think about AFib. So these atria depolarized at a very, very fast rate, up to 600 beats per minute, okay? Um, don't get too hung up on this. Sometimes we have what's called fine fibrillatory waves or coarse fibrillatory waves. And all that means is sometimes they're very, very small, and sometimes they're kind of big and may mimic more like a ventricular flutter, almost. Um, again, F waves or these fibrillation waves sometimes may mimic a P wave, so be careful. Don't let that confuse you. Uh, if you've got an irregular rhythm and it's hard to find, you might find, well, maybe that's a P wave, but I don't really see any, anywhere else. Think ventricular, I'm sorry, think atrial fibrillation. It's probably not a P wave. Sometimes it, the F wave will just hit in such a way that it looks like it is, okay? And again, unless there's a problem with the ventricular depolarization, the QRS complexes should be of a normal duration. Atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia and the most common arrhythmia that puts a patient in the hospital. Lifetime risk is for the, over the age of 40 is 25%, and 10% of people who are over the age of 80 will have had atrial fibrillation you know, at that time. Okay? So it, it's super common. Um, complications of atrial fibrillation can include things like hemodynamic instability, cardiomyopathy, cardiac failure, and again, embolic events such as stroke. That's our main concern with these patients uh, is their risk of stroke over the lifetime, okay? So again, characterized by disorganized atrial electrical activity and, and contraction. All right. If you remember back to our very first lecture, we talked about the, the need for the atrial kick. Do you remember that, atrial systole? So passively, the ventricles will fill up but if the atria contract, we get an additional 10 to 40% of blood going from the atria down into the ventricles. Well, with atrial fibrillation, you've essentially lost atrial kick, okay? So in those patients who are really reliant upon that atria to contract and pass the blood down to the ventricles, they're going to become hemodynamically unstable because there's, not, there's no blood flowing into the ventricles that can flow out into the, into the circulation, okay? Same thing is true, again, if you're not getting that blood flowing out into the body in the right directions, backing up into the lungs, and so you end up with uh, cardiac failure, congestive heart failure, where now they've got wet lung sounds and shortness of breath, coughing up pink sputums and, and stuff like that, okay? 
stroke, 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 ischemic stroke, not, he, not hemorrhagic stroke. Do you, know, you guys know the difference between hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic stroke? Exactly. So you want to make sure you know the difference, okay? All right. Let's see if this will. It may not play. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hang on. Yeah, but, oh, here we go. All right. This is my three-year-old. I told him to, to do a dance. And you can tell it's just disorganized electrical activity, <laughs> okay? <laughs> So when you think atrial fibrillation, just think <laughs> that, okay? There's, there's no organization to it whatsoever, unlike his daddy who's smooth as butter, right? Okay, so disorganized electroactivity, that's what that is. All right, so let me get on the next slide here. There we go. Okay, so commonly atrial fibrillation is associated with a ventricular rate of 110 to 180 its normal rate is not slow, it's, it speeds up because there's so many impulses coming from the atria, right? Eventually one's gonna hit, that, hit the AV node and depolarize the ventricle. So the, generally the rate is higher. Um, when somebody has a rate over 100 beats per minute, we generally call that a rapid ventricular response. So you may hear people say, uh, he's an AFib with RVR, and all it means is a rapid ventricular response. We call it RVR a lot of times, okay? So a slow AFib is a rate less than 60, that can happen, but eh, unless they're on medications or something, that's probably not going to be it. Um, so cause of slow AFib, again, hypothermia, digoxin, toxicity, medications, and sinus node dysfunction. All right. Atrial fibrillation. Now, if you look at what should be an isoelectric baseline, it's not, right? It just looks like somebody's kind of doing this number right here, okay? Just a bunch of quivering, because that's what's happening in the atria, it's just, it's just quivering. And so there's no flat lines anywhere. Again, the other dead giveaway to think AFib is an irregular ventricular rate. So if you were to try to march out this, and that, and then this, and you can see that there's no, there's no pattern. One's gonna be closer to the farther. They're, they're, they're very, very irregular. The, the R to R intervals are not the same really much of anywhere, okay? Maybe on a rare occasion. Yes, ma'am. Excellent question. So that we have different methods for, for measuring the rate, right? We do the count-off method, 300, 150, 100, 75, 60, 50, right? Or we can do the six-second rule, which is what you do with the irregular rhythm. So, uh, which is a little bit trickier on here, but if you remember five big blocks is a second, count out 30 of those, you get six seconds, count the number of QRS complexes that are happening and then multiply that by 10 and you'll get your rate for an irregular rhythm, okay? So anytime it's irregular, you kind of have to go to the six second method in order to determine the rate, because you're trying to get an average, okay? So no P waves, an irregular rhythm, that's atrial fibrillation. Feel pretty good about that? Questions about that slide? Okay. Here's another one, this is definitely Atrial fibrillation with RVR, or rapid ventricular response, this rate is fast, fast, okay? And so, again, if it gets really, really fast, sometimes the irregularity of the R to R intervals can be hard to pick up. They start looking like they could be regular. So you've got, at a glance, you might not think AFib. So make sure you get out those calipers that we haven't talked too much about. But use those calipers, throw it on the R to R interval, and start trying to mark it out and see if it, if it doesn't land the same each time. 
And you'll see that for the most part, they're irregular. Occasionally they might land in the same spot, but, but generally not so much, okay? The other thing we're looking for, are there P waves? I don't see any P waves, okay? Uh, when you do have, when you do have some, uh, what, you know, and sometimes you have to look, 12 leads are very helpful because if you're only looking at one particular lead, you may not see what you need to kind of help you come up with the rhythm. But up here you can see that this, this right in here in lead three, you can see the baseline is not isoelectric. There's a lot of quivering there. Whereas in some of these other leads, it might be more difficult to determine. You know, don't feel, don't look around, find the, find the part that makes you feel comfortable about what you're saying. Make sense? Okay, so the, fibril the fibrillatory waves are, are more obvious here in lead, lead three than they are in V1 that they have running down at the bottom. Irregular rhythm, absence of P waves, no isoelectric baseline. Again, on, on this lead, on, on this EKG here, um, the fibrillatory waves are so fine that it sometimes looks like it's almost isoelectric, right? So you, the key is here, again, the irregularity of this rhythm. The R-to-R intervals are absolutely not, this, not, not regular, okay? Very, very irregular atrial fibrillation. And again, look at several leads. It may not be obvious here that, that there's, there's fibrillatory waves, but up in V1, it might be a little bit more apparent that that's what, what's going on. So look around, but the irregular rhythm is your key here, okay? Irregularly irregular. All right, so what, what causes people to have atrial fibrillation? Well, the older you get, remember, 10% of the of people over the age of 80 will have atrial fibrillation, so advancing age, frequently after cardiac surgery, um, a first, you know, I went to, I was an RN for a while, worked on a cardiac floor. Um, the patients were all either after a heart catheterization or bypass surgery. And about a third of those patients after they had open heart surgery were in atrial fibrillation. Super, super common. You got somebody fiddling around with the heart causing inflammation. You know, his debs, remember, I think ischemia was, I was actually the ischemia there, but inflammation of the heart, inflammation of that muscle tissue gets it irritable. And those patients were in atrial fibrillation pretty commonly, okay? So after heart surgery, uh, increase in sympathetic tone, like exercise and emotional excitement, um, and then structural heart disease. So things like atrial dilation, fibrosis, uh, coronary artery disease, hypertensive heart disease, valvular heart disease, hyperthyroidism, that's a, that's a common one. So get a patient with that. You may want to do a thyroid workup, TSH, T4 levels. And then excessive alcohol consumption. So Memorial Day weekend, guys. You may experience some atrial fibrillation. Okay, coming up. Don't do that. Don't do that. I don't advise excessive alcohol consumption. Moderation is key. When I drink my bourbon, I just make sure it's a little bit. Hope you're all okay with that. Okay. Nobody offended, right? Okay, so more causes of atrial fibrillation. There's your list. I'm not going to read them off. You can look at that. Again, the clinical consequences of atrial fibrillation, you're losing that atrial kick, you're losing that additional 10 to 40% of blood being ejected down to the ventricles so we can decrease the cardiac output. And those patients who are really dependent upon that can, can develop congestive heart failure, ischemia, so they're having chest pain, shortness of breath. And the faster the rate, the more decrease the cardiac output. The ventricles are having just that much less time to fill up with blood 
And so therefore, the cardiac output's going down. Okay. This says that atrial fibrillation over 160 beats per minute is more likely to have that hypotension or the congestive heart failure. Again, risk of ischemic stroke with atrial fibrillation. Not, not um, hemorrhagic, but ischemic, okay? The most common places for the, the blood to collect is in what's called the left atrial appendage. So there's a, there's a test when I worked with the cardiologist, we would occasionally do what's called a TEE or transesophageal echocardiogram. So you can put an echocardiogram on the chest. Everybody know what echocardiogram is, right? Um, and so it's just an ultrasound of the heart. But this was like an ultrasound that was taking place inside of the esophagus. And why, why we do that, because it's, it's easier to see these, um, these clots in the left atrial appendage because it sits right up there near the atrium, okay? So we're looking for, and we wanted to know whether those patients had a clot or not before we went and cardioverted them if we didn't know how long, you know, things had been going on. Last thing you want to do is cardiovert somebody with a, with a clot in the left atrium and then send that thing shooting out into the, you know, and then cause problems, okay? So if we weren't sure how long they had the rhythm, we would you know, generally do that first and see. Okay. Left atrial appendage, again, embolic stroke. Um, so and these people are getting anticoagulated, just like the atrial flutter, with medications such as warfarin, which is Coumadin, or rat poison, right? Aspirin, clopidogrel, uh, which is Plavix, and these newer agents such as uh, dabagatrin, um, you know, which we don't require uh, blood monitoring like the cumin and stuff does. We all get into that in pharmacology. Okay, so really what we're trying to do uh, is determine is this patient at higher risk of stroke or higher risk of bleeding when we try to treat them with, a, with these anticoagulants, okay? Kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So we put them on an anticoagulant to prevent them from having a stroke and we cause them to have a GI bleed and, and, and croak from that, you know? So we, we've got to weigh our risk versus benefit. All right, uh, just some terminology for you. First episode of atrial fibrillation, we have recurrent AFib if we've had more than two episodes, paroxysmal, et cetera, persistent longstanding. That's just there for your knowledge. I'm not gonna read it off for you, okay? The management of atrial fibrillation is pretty complex. It's, it's, all, it's constantly changing, constantly being updated. So people in, in cardiology are, are staying up to date with that. There's some guidelines you can look for to read up on that. You can talk about it in ClinMed. But just know there's, there's a lot of detail that can go into the management of atrial fibrillation. A lot of it's pretty similar to what we talked about in atrial flutter. Um, you can try to slow down the rate using medications such as beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and DIG. You have your electrical cardioversion. Again, shocking those patients. You want to land it. Synchronized cardioversion, right? On the R wave, not on the... T wave, very good. So generally, if these patients are unstable, um, you know, their, their, their blood pressure is 60 or something like that, they're not perfusing very well, um, you, you put the pads on, you synchronize it on the machine, and you cardiovert those patients right then and there to try to restore a normal rhythm, okay, if they're unstable. For those who are, who are, um, are stable but just haven't responded to the medication, sometimes they may plan the procedure ahead of time, get those patients sedated, which is preferable than doing it without them sedated, like up here, and then, and then do the electrical cardioversion that way. Again, here it is. Um, so a lot of times we do the TEE to make sure there's not an atrial thrombus before we do that.
So uh, what's the rate, what's the rhythm? But tell me what the rhythm is. Let's start with this. Is it look regular or irregular? Maybe on the screen it's a little hard to tell. You may want to get your fingers or your calipers out and, and tell me if you think it's regular or not. I'll do it myself just to make sure. And some of it's regular, some of it's eh, kind of a tricky one maybe. Do you see any P waves? I don't see any P waves. Do you see an isoelectric baseline? I don't see that either. Um, it kind of looks like, I heard somebody say atrial flutter. I could kind of see where you would say that. Um, but it, this is actually atrial fibrillation, OK? You just got more of a quivering here. Again, these are more coarse fibrillatory waves, so it can be hard to determine. But uh, the difference is atrial flutter is generally going to be very, is generally going to be regular versus irregular. And it should have a nice, I mean, just think, if I'm going to throw you an atrial flutter, it's going to, you're going to see those nice, pretty saw waves every single time. There's a few that might look like that. Again, like, just like sometimes fibrillatory waves may look, mimic a P wave, maybe they might mimic a flutter wave too, but you don't really see it consistently. There's certainly no flutter-looking waves there, and I don't see any up here at all. Okay, it's more just that quivering atria. So this is atrial fibrillation. And again, if you're trying to determine the rate of something that's irregular, you got to get the six-second strip and count the number of complexes that are occurring. Okay. Wait a minute. We haven't even talked about that one yet. All right. So, um, what is that one? Yeah, that one's an easy one, right? The, the, the sawtooth waves really stick out. Those are your flutter waves. Anybody tell me what the what the ratio is? does change over here a bit, but you've got one, two, three, a fourth right there on top of the QRS complex. So it's a four to one. And again, uh, the flutter waves are going to be around a rate of 300. And so if you remember the dark line rule, the count off method, the very next line is 300. You can see that uh, right here, they land almost exactly one block apart. So the rate is generally around 300 for these flutter waves. That help you too, okay, if you think you might see a flutter wave, like on that last, last uh, two back. That might be a beneficial thing to look at. Might not be, I don't know, let's see. If these are, oh, never mind. <laughs> those, those do mimic it pretty well. All right, so it's a, generally a four to one, although there's some areas here in which it's not. You see the nice sawtooth waves. It's a fairly regular rhythm for the most part. When these QRS complexes are here, they're nice and steady and regular, okay? Atrial flutter. All right, let's talk about the paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardias. Or we kind of all bundle these up together to call it SVT, okay? So if you learn these just as SVT, I'm okay with that. But there's three, three or four different rhythms that kind of fall under that umbrella, okay? It's complicated. We're going to dive into it the best we can. This is kind of a fly overview, okay? You can certainly get more in-depth with these things, but we're going we're gonna to just kind of get you, get you familiar with it. So just like an arrhythmia, it can be one single beat, or it can be sustained forever. P 
PSVT can be brief and non-sustained. So what we're talking about is basically if you have these three beats in a row, okay, like three PACs or three, three abnormal beats, we call that a run of SVT, okay? And it can last, uh, it can be over 30 seconds, which we would call sustained, okay? So you can have a, just a paroxysm or a short one, or you can have a sustained. The three major types are atrial tachycardia, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, AVNRT, or AV reentrant tachycardia, which is AVRT. Okay, this one involves that accessory pathway or bypass tract that we talked about earlier. Okay. So atrial tachycardia. So sudden rapid firing of a very irritable atrial automaticity focus. In other words, it's a depolarization happening that's inside of the atria. It is not the SA node. Okay. The SA node is not firing, it's somewhere else up there that is, is causing the atria to depolarize. The rate is generally about 150 to 250, although you can look at things that will tell you different. You know, everybody's got their, you know, if you look at all these textbooks and online resources, it's always variable, so this is a general, general range. So rate is a generally 150 to 250, and again, it's going so fast that it overdrive suppresses the SA node. You guys remember overdrive suppression? So basically, if the electrical impulse is going out so fast, like the SA node generally is going to pace faster than the AV node, right? The AV node is a backup pacemaker. So the SA node normally overdrive suppresses the AV node. The SA node quits working. There's no longer overdrive suppression, so the AV node kicks in. So what we're talking about here is that the atrial, this atrial ectopy, this abnormal uh, spot in the atria is pacing so fast that it now suppresses the SA node and it, it doesn't fire, okay? So it takes over as the primary pacemaker. Again, these, these atrial depolarization or P prime waves are going to look different than uh, the P wave from a sinus rhythm. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, unless you saw it change from one thing to another, you're going to have no idea that it was an atrial tachycardia other than by the rate, okay, than it is a sinus rhythm necessarily, okay? But if you see, if you see it switch, then you know that's what's going on. So the P, P prime waves will all have the same appearance and morphology once the atrial tachycardia starts. Those P prime waves will look the same. Um, again, because of the, the ventricular rate being so fast, they may have lightheadedness and syncope, congestive heart failure. As you can see, a lot of these rhythms ha have the same kind of complications to them. Um, and again, sustained runs are treated with antiarrhythmics. Okay, that's atrial tachycardia. This is multifocal atrial tachycardia. In other words, instead of just one spot in the atria causing this wave of depolarization, there's th at least three different areas that are causing the problem. So because there's three different areas causing, causing that abnormal depolarization in the atria, you'll have three different appearances to the, to the P prime wave, okay? Because none of them are coming from the same spot. You've got three different waves of depolarization in the atria. So each one of those is going to cause a different picture. Remember, just like the PAC we talked about, how the P wave morphology will be different, because it's not coming from the SA node. Same thing is with this, okay? So multifocal atrial tachycardia, at least three different P wave morphologies. And the, the thing you always hear about this is it's typically in patients that have COPD or chronic lung disease, okay? Put life in the fast lane up there. Fantastic online resource. I think it's on your syllabus, but if you've got, you know, further, want further explanation, uh, want to see further rhythm strips, I'd recommend visiting that site help clarify some things. So multifocal atrial tachycardia, again, it's a tachycardia, so the rate's going to be over 100. 
Um, it's an irregular, irregular rhythm with varying P to P and PR and RR intervals, all because, you know, we're the different uh, atrial depolarizations that are happening, at least three distinctive P wave morphologies that are happening consecutively. I don't know why that's, sorry, that's the wrong slide. So get that down there, okay? So um, the isoelectric baseline, there's, there is an isoelectric baseline between the, the P prime waves. Um, in an absence of a single dominant atrial pacemaker, again, you've got three, at least three different areas in the atria competing to be dominant as the pacemaker of the heart. Some of the P waves might not be conducted. In fact, it'd be just like those PACs we talked about earlier. It's going to the ventricles before they're ready to depolarize, ready to swim to the other end of the pool, so there's no ventricular contraction. There's just, there's just silence, okay? I'm sorry, let me see if I've got a picture of that somewhere. Oh, I think actually one of those 12 leads was was MAT, Oop. yeah. So if you're looking at the, um, the P waves here, you can see this one's tall and peaked, that one's kind of short and fat, and that one's skinny and, and short, okay? And that one's tall and peaked, and so the, there's even, this one's inverted. So you've got different areas in the atria that are they're firing off that are causing different appearances to that, to that P prime wave, okay, and it's going to be a bit irregular. The PR interval will change too because depending on where that, that atrial depolarization is coming from, if it's down near the bottom of the atria closer to the AV node, it may be really short. It may just get, the impulse might get there really fast, or if it's higher up, maybe it takes a little bit longer and the PR interval is a little longer, okay. Everybody follow that? Don't see this very often, so don't want you to get too hung up on it. The, the, the key here is the definition, at least three different P wave morphologies and being able to pick that out, I think you'll be golden, okay? And think of chronic, lu chronic lung disease, COPD. Really, those are your, your takeaways from that. Wandering atrial pacemaker, essentially the same type of rhythm, except it's, the rate is not tachycardic, it's not over 100 beats per minute. So you've got at least three different P-wave morphologies, all the same stuff, different rate, okay? Make sense? Okay. Now the fun stuff. All right, so AV nodal re-entrant tachycardia is another one of those SVT. In fact, it's generally what we just call it SVT when somebody comes in, okay? Because that's what we think of. Um, it's very common in young women, age, generally age 20 to 40. We've got one of our nurses, um, her daughter's not even 20 yet, but she, she deals with SVTs in the ER sometimes with it. Um, so think, I always think of young women when it comes to SVT. Those tend to be the patients that, that get it. If they come in, like say they come into the emergency room, they've been feeling all these heart palpitations and stuff because their heart's getting up to 200 beats per minute sometimes, and they may be feeling all those heart palpitations. They come in and everything is now normal on the EKG, you may can write them off as, oh, they're just having a panic attack or freaking out or whatever. Um, so, but they could very well be having SVT, so something to think about. It makes you feel like you're having a panic attack, so to speak. Definitely there's a flip-flop feeling in your chest when something kind of kicks off and it just kind of rolls because it's just going so stinking fast. Um, because these patients are generally young and, and healthy, um, they t most of them will tolerate it pretty well. You know, even though the rate's really, really fast, they're kind of hanging in there okay. Uh, other than just feeling like crap, they're they're not, you know, they're stable, generally. Um, and so, um, again, here's that, uh, we talked about Canon A waves earlier. So you've got this, 
this pulsation in your neck that, um, that's coming from the atria and the ventricle basically contracting at the same time. We call those cannon A waves. Um, sometimes it can, um, it can get dizzy, lightheaded, sometimes pass out, but not, not always, but just kind of feel crummy and, and that kind of thing. Okay. So let's try to, try to break down, and I'll try to explain to you the best I can how, how this is going, okay? How this works. So I'm going to draw you a picture of the, the AV node in these abnormal, abnormal people here. So. Okay. So, so in this abnormal situation, instead of one particular path going down through the AV node, they've actually got kind of got dual pathways, two different ways in which the electrical impulse can travel down through that AV node. Okay. There's a slow pathway. We'll draw it on this side, just like they did over here. Everything's kind of going slow. It takes it a long time to get down here. And then there's the, there's the fast pathway, okay, on the other side. Let me draw it a different color so you can see the difference. Okay. You have a slow pathway over here, and you got a fast pathway over here, okay? Now, the difference is that the slow pathway has a fast um, uh, or quick, short, um, a short recovery period or refractory period, okay? So short refractory period. So think about this, if, you, if you're going for a jog, and I tell you to jog a block, you know, and you just take your time with it, and, and it's not really bothering you too much, you could probably pick up and jog back again without really having to stop and break very much, okay? So it, it recovers very, very quickly. In fact, by the time this impulse gets down to the bottom, it's already starting to um, get ready for the next impulse, okay? Whereas the, um, the fast side over here has a much uh, longer refractory period, okay? Sorry for the handwriting, okay? So I told you to sprint, sprint as fast as you can down to the other side. You're going to say, man, I need a minute before I, I go back and turn around and do this again. And so this has a longer refractory period in which it's taking a little bit longer for the impulse to travel down, okay? So what happens is these patients will have a PAC, a premature atrial contraction, and they've got this dual pathway down here. And the impulse, say the first time around, let's see what color I have, um, it comes down here like this. Um, let's, let's do the sinus rhythm first. I think that's what we have up here, sinus rhythm first. So sinus rhythm, you've got a slow impulse coming down here. You've got a fast impulse coming down here. And what will happen is, because this is depolarized over here, the, the fast impulse stops, right? Because this, this is not ready for another impulse. So it's not going to do anything over here. It's already done it. So it goes straight down and down to the bottom of the heart. Does that make, kind of make sense? Because this, this side over here is depolarized. We can't, we can't depolarize it again. It's not ready for another impulse. So it, nothing's going to happen this way. If it, if it was ready for an impulse, it, it could potentially travel back up that way, which it will in a minute, okay? So, but since this part over here is depolarized, the, the depolarization comes down here, stops, because it can't go any further, and then it goes down this way. This is sinus rhythm. Good? All right, let's make sure you follow that, because if you don't follow that, we won't follow the next one. Now we get a premature atrial contraction that happens. And what's happened here, yeah, get my green, is that this has depolarized, but starts to, starts to, um, 
starts to re starts to well, let me get the slide up. <laughs> Told you this is complicated stuff. All right. So what's happening here? Let me read it for you, and then I can maybe draw it for you. So when, what happens when there's a PAC? Okay, it arrives while the fast pathway is still refractory. So the the, the fast side is remember has a longer refractory period. It can't accept the impulse. Um, and so what happens is it just goes down the slow pathway first because it can't go over here yet. It's still in the refractory period. Everybody follow that? Again, it's complicated. So it's going down the slow pathway first. And what happens is by the time the slow pathway gets down here, this is no longer in the refractory period. And so what ends up going on is that this sends up a circulation that way. Okay? So, instead of, so it goes down this way, but it also sends an impulse back up that way. And basically, you just go around and around and around because this recovers pretty quickly so that you end up getting this what we call circus or circular effect. That makes sense? Could have certainly been explained a little bit better, but that's, that's generally what's happening. And so then you get what's called, since this involves just the AV node, we call this AV nodal re-entrant because it's re-entering here, tachycardia because it's going to go super fast. Everybody follow that? All right, so it's called AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, and so basically you get this impulse that keeps going around and around and around. Very fast rate. I think young women generally, it's uh, rates generally between 150 to 220 beats per minute. Um, again, it originates in the AV node area, spreads simultaneously down into the ventricles. You get this clock, you know, clockwise pattern here going on in the in the uh, AV node. As a consequence, because the rate is so stinking fast from the ventricles, the P waves generally aren't seen. Okay? They're usually going to be hidden inside the QRS complex because and everything's kind of going on at the same time. Remember we said you know, those cannon A waves because the atrium and the ventricles are contracting at the same time? So think your, your P waves are hidden inside the QRS complex because it's all kind of going on simultaneously. Occasionally, it may happen just before or just after, but most of the time when I think of SVT, I think it's just really, you really think of a fast, narrow QRS complex, a fast rate with a narrow QRS complex in which you can't see a P wave. We'll show you that here in just a second. Again, P waves, often hidden. They're inside of those QRS complexes. Now, if there's one thing I want you to go ahead and try to remember from, from the difference between the AV nodal reentrant tachycardia and AV reentrant tachycardia is this one thing here, okay? that the retrograde P wave is obscured in the corresponding QRS complex and occurs at the end of the QRS complex potentially as a pseudo R prime or an FS wave, okay? And all it's saying is that this little notch right here that looks like it could be an, a little R prime wave where it slightly goes up is actually the P wave hidden inside of the QRS complex, okay? So that's, that's what we're seeing right here where the circle's at, that little bitty thing right there that looks like an R prime is actually the, the P wave hidden within that. Everybody follow that? Okay. So what we would see is a pseudo R prime wave in leads V1 and V2. That's what we've got right down here is V2. And if we're looking at the inferior leads 2, 3, AVF, then we actually get a pseudo S wave. So it goes down the other direction. Okay. So again, typical SVT appearance. I always think of this very narrow complex QRS very fast rate, and I can't see P waves anywhere. Okay. If you're looking hard enough and you know to be looking for it, you might see these pseudo R prime and S waves. Okay.
Yes. No, that's a, sorry, that's a pseudo R wave right there. I think I've got one with a pseudo S wave. I hope so. We'll see if we can find it. All right. So we, um, adenosine. When you think of SVT, think adenosine. Okay. This, go ahead and know that. That's what I'm going to have you remember medication-wise. I know it's not farm class, but remember adenosine when it's SVT. Um, so we, after, again, this guy we had in the emergency room. That's right. I was telling you the old guy story, right? So the old guy was in there. We were doing the vagal maneuvers, blowing the through the straw. I did not stick his face in the water, I swear. So we tried all those things while they were trying to get him hooked up. And then the next thing we did was we went, because he was in SVT, we went and got adenosine, okay? Adenosine is, a, is an antiarrhythmic. What it does, it causes a transient heart block at the AV node. In fact, when you give these patients this medication, um, it, it can cause asystole. We haven't talked about asystole, but that's flatline, guys. That means for a period of seconds, there, there's no electroactivity happening there, and you can imagine what that might feel like. Those patients don't, don't feel very comfortable, but it's safe. It's, it has a very short half-life, meaning that in 30 seconds, this thing is practically gone, okay? Um, it also is a vasodilator, so sometimes people will feel flush from it and uh, lower the blood pressure. Again, we use it to medically cardiovert, causes that ventricular, it should say asystole, not systole, add a little A there. It's not cause ventricular contraction, it causes a lack of contraction. And uh, for a few seconds, those patients may feel very uncomfortable. Sometimes you can throw the patients into atrial fibrillation with the medication, okay? Um, don't have to remember this necessarily, but if you give the adenosine, we start out with a six milligram dose, and because it's just a short half-life, we push it as fast as we can, we take a flush and we push that as fast as we can, trying to get that medication to the heart before it's too late and the medicine's not gonna work anymore, okay? We can follow that a couple minutes later again because it's such a short half-life, we can repeat the dose pretty quickly, and we usually double that to 12 milligrams. Now, patients who are drinking a lot of caffeine, theophylline, although not used probably very much anymore, those patients can have a hard, hard time converting with adenosine. Okay, so um, again, like we mentioned earlier, you said, how long does it last? Well, it's a self-perpetuating rhythm. Until something comes in to kind of stop it, whether it be an increase in vagal tone or medication or something like that, these things will, will go in, in, in continuously and without stopping. So we've got to have some kind of outside source or something inside the body that's making that stop. So again, we try the, the vagal maneuvers, the vagal reduction, to, to increase the vagal tone. We do the valsalva maneuver, which is just bearing down, the carotid sinus massage. You can make them cough, deep breathing, squatting, uh, facial immersion in cold water, blowing through the straw, all those kinds of things, okay? And adenosine is what we use to treat SPT. Here is video that I meant to bring up earlier. It was more fitting now. See if I can find it. Make sure there's volume. Why don't we have volume? Oh, because I didn't put it up here, did I? That will help. I think. Still don't have any volume. Anybody any thoughts on that? Oh, there it is. Before we start with the medication, we actually, I want to try to see if the vagal maneuvers do work. Some people it works, it doesn't work. And to really learn how to take care of this yourself, it's a set of factors. Vagal maneuvers means like when you go back and you push and you're very constipated, you push really hard. When that's done, you can just go to the pelvic down. If you do that for me, then I can get used to that. Is that the end of that? It didn't work? Okay. Oh, 
You notice some artifacts up there too. See how it's kind of the rhythm's kind of waving like that. He's taking a deep breath. So those are the things you might see just from them breathing in the movement of the chest. Okay, that's what that is. That was really unimpressive as far as the duration uh, of the asystole, because a lot of times I've seen it do a whole lot more than that. But you can see she's converting now to a sinus rhythm. Um, kind of slow at first. She ends up kind of speeding up. And he talks about using calcium channel blockers and beta blockers to slow that down. Whether or not he actually did it, I I'm not sure. If he was just trying to make a point to teach you something. But um, I also want to pull up one more. I thought was worth because the, the adenosine didn't work. Wait a minute. So here's an here's a SVT in, uh, on a monitor. Okay. The P waves and the T waves all kind of run together. You know, there's really no P wave. It's just the T wave, and the kinda, there's not really any distinguishing thing. Very fast rhythm. Um, what that was, they're trying to cardioverter. What? Again, the rate's real fast, 190s, such like that. Okay. That's really loud and obnoxious. <laughs> Here's a PAC. I meant to show you these earlier. Let's do it now. So this is a sinus rhythm. And there's the PAC, okay? So it came prematurely. The P wave is a you know, different complex or morphology than the others. That's a PAC. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if this is not, that's not what I want. And here's atrial flutter. Beautiful music, relaxing. If you're studying, just take yourself away. This is nice. Ah, I love atrial flutter. Okay. 
All right, this, this fellow is getting cardioverted. Let's see. So they're giving him propofol or diprovan, call it Michael Jackson juice. Okay, that's the stuff he was using to help him sleep. It looks like white milky stuff. They've got him knocked out. You can see they're trying to wake him up here, and he's not responding. So this is an elective cardioversion. Sorry. <laughs> so it doesn't feel too good, obviously, but uh, that is a, an electrical cardioversion. So they tried to, you know, cardiovert with the denison, didn't work. That's chemical cardioversion. That is electrical cardioversion there, okay? Um, all right. Back to where we were. He may not. He may not. Yeah. Okay. All right, here we go again, a denison, short acting. You, get, you heard that guy run through all this stuff. You're going to feel crummy. Um, sometimes it causes kind of a, a, a systole there for a little bit and try to convert them over to a sinus rhythm. That's chemical cardioversion. All right, now we're talking about instead of AV nodal reentrant tachycardia where all the activities happen in the AV node, now we're talking about AV reentrant tachycardia minus the N, okay? And this is that bypass track that we were talking about earlier, where there's the accessory pathway that allows the electrical activity to go down to the ventricles um, without, or even back up from the ventricles to the atria in this situation, to, and, um, besides going through the AV node, okay? And so what happens is the, it, the atria depolarizes, the ventricles comes down the AV node appropriately, depolarizes the ventricles, and actually finds its way back up into the atria through the accessory track. And so it's sending that impulse up here faster than the SA node kicks in. And so what happens is it makes a circle here just like that. So the ventricles are actually causing a depolarization of the atria, and you just have the cyclic rhythm, okay? So again, in appearance, generally going to look very, very similar to the AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. We'll talk about it. The, the key difference here is that the, the P waves would be negative in 2-3 AVF and may occur shortly after the QRS complex. You may be able to see that a little bit better, okay? Again, for testing purposes, that's about it. For clinical purposes, really, it's all treated the same. We use a denison. It looks like a fast, narrow, complex rhythm um, with no really identifiable P waves for the most part, okay? So this is AV nodal. The AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, okay, so we're looking for those pseudo R prime and pseudo S waves um, in those leads. You can kind of see the pseudo, yeah, right here. So in V, v remember V1 and V2, we're looking for those pseudo R waves, and, and we can kind of see the little hump right there, okay? That's the P wave, 
looks like a pseudo, it really looks like an R prime, but that's the P wave hidden within that. And again, we just kind of classify this as SVT. I'm not trying to get you to figure out if it's AV nodal reentrant tachycardia or AV reentrant tachycardia. It's a very regular rhythm, very fast. Right here is 225 beats per minute. No discernible, discernible P waves. What we have is just, a, is it a T, is it a P? It looks like the same thing. It's all together. We don't have two individual waves, right? So we have that with a, with a narrow complex QRS complex, meaning it's not wide. It's of a normal duration. And that, this is classic looking SVT, okay? Fast, narrow, you don't have but, but one hump there. Is it a P, is it a T? Well, it's, it's, there's no discernible P waves, okay? Everybody follow that, make sense? I think we're getting here near the end. 57, uh, slide 57, this is the exact same kind of thing, again, there's only, is it, there's no discernible P wave. We just have the one hump there. We don't have a T and a P. We just have that. And this is a narrow complex tachycardia, very fast rate of 180 beats per minute. Again, this is a classic looking SVT. And again, we're saying SVT, we're saying it could be atrial tachycardia, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, or AV reentrant tachycardia. Bottom line is, in, in practice, we call these things SVT. The other is just FYI, so you know where it comes from and what it is. But this is what we're looking at. This is what we try with vagal maneuvers, adenosine, electrical cardioversion, if need be. Okay. So in summary, when should you think about SVT? When you've got a rapid, typically very regular rate around 200 beats per minute. Okay. I think that lady was like 190s or something when we watched the clip. That's pretty, pretty typical. Okay. One last slide. So treatment, just to review those things again, uh, vagal maneuvers down here, and we, then we go to adenosine. If those things don't work, then we can try calcium channel blockers. In fact, I think the, the, the guy I was talking about did not convert with adenosine. We ended up having to start him on a cardism drip, which is a calcium channel blocker, okay? And then uh, beta blockers and digoxin, which is oral medication. It can be given IV too, but those, those things also uh, as treatment. And that is all. Any questions about those things?